Father, I pray that the effect of your word, read, recited, seen, preached, heard, would produce faithful sufferers for Christ's glory. Oh, what a price the Lord Jesus has paid for us that we might suffer well with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Would you draw near now and help me to rise to the worth of this truth that was just given to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Treasuring Christ and the call to suffer. I want to begin with what I might call clarifications and expansions on the third and closing point last time, namely that suffering in the universe is judicial. And to that end, I would direct your attention again to chapter 8 of Romans, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. So somebody did this. Somebody subjected the creation to futility and slavery to corruption and the miseries that we see, not willingly. That is, it wasn't the creation's will. He subjected it to uh, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And I argued that the only person that could have done that in hope that the creation would be set free from its bondage to decay is, in fact, God himself. And so we interpreted the miseries of our lives as the subjection of the creation by God to futility. Now, here's the first clarification. I have three clarifications and expansions upon that truth. Natural horrors, therefore, in the world are God's response to moral horror. We said that. Every time you see a natural horror, you should say that is a display of God's judgment, his assessment of moral reality in the universe. Or another way to say it, the agony of pain is God's witness to the outrage of God-belittling sin. The subjection of the world to futility in this verse 20 is God's judgment. It's his condemnation. It's his sentence spoken over the world in response to the reality of the outrage of sin. Genesis 3.16, because you have done this, I will multiply your pain. Verse 17, in pain you shall eat bread. Verse 18, by the sweat of your face you shall eat it. So this is all response from God to sin. So what we see in the world today is God's 
subjecting the universe to futility. Now, here's the clarification. According to verse 1 of the chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason is because in verse 3, God did what the law could not do. He sent his son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in that sinful flesh, that like sinful flesh, son, he condemned your sin if you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, no suffering and no pain of any person who is in Christ is condemnation or is a sentence of law or is judgment. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is no curse of the law on those who are in Christ Jesus, which means that all of the suffering and all of the pain of all of God's people is something else. It has been by virtue of our curse being born by Christ, our condemnation being born by Christ, our wrath being absorbed by Christ. Our suffering is never the wrath of God. It's never condemnation. It's never judgment. It is always something else. And it is many things. And I won't name them all. I would just say the easiest way perhaps to remember it, at least that's the way my mind works, is that it is never punishment. It is always purifying. It has shifted. It has been transformed. We suffer just like the world does. We all get sick. Things go wrong in our lives. We are subject under this overarching plan of God for this fallen age to all the same things that the fallen, unredeemed people experience. But for us, they mean something radically different. And they mean something for them radically different if they ever come to faith, because all of those sufferings will have been God's way of bringing them to faith, which is not a judgment, but a mercy. The only people for whom judgment remains judgment are those who resist the offer of salvation. And their judgment is forever. And the pain continues. And we call it hell. That's the first clarification. If you're a believer, all the pain in your life is never, ever a condemnation or a punishment or a judgment from God. And the best chapter on that perhaps would be Hebrews 12, if you want to go read it, where the explanation of discipline is given. That is purifying, sanctifying, transforming discipline. And any of you who have walked on the planet for some decades and have tasted enough pain, you know exactly why you have never heard anybody bear witness to the fact that they got closest to God on their sunny days. 
Never in my life have I heard in 62 years a single human being bear witness to their life by saying, if I compare the nearness to God in my hard times and my easy times, it was the easy times when I got very close to God. No one has ever said that. That's a very strange thing. So it means something else, like come near to me, learn of me. I will show myself to you. I will be precious to you as never before in this. Clarification number one. Number two, moving toward expansion as much as clarification. In God's judgment on sin... And the subjection of the world to futility in verse 20, he was doing more than responding to sin. God is always doing more than responding. There is always design and purpose in what God does, whether he does it by active agency or by permission. An infinitely wise God permits what he permits for reasons, and he does what he does actively for reasons. So whatever happens, whether by permission or by activity, is designed in God's mind. Nothing is willy-nilly. There are no happenstances in the universe. All is providence and all is purposeful. What was he doing? When he subjected the world to futility in verse 20, in hope, in hope that the whole creation might be set free from its bondage to decay. Here's, here's what he was doing. And I'm going to try to give you a picture here of the ultimate reason that the universe exists and fit suffering into that. These are the weightiest and the biggest things I could think of to say. And I'm only saying them because this paragraph happens to be the biggest, most global, universal, sweeping paragraph in the Bible, as far as I can and tell. And so we're driven to think this way as we meditate on these verses in Romans 8, 18 to 25. He was fulfilling, when he subjected the world to futility, he was fulfilling an eternal plan, eternal plan, all plans with God are eternal, an eternal plan that the revelation of his glory would be seen in the revelation of his grace in the appearance of Christ in his death on the cross supremely. Let me say that again and rearrange the word order so it might be a little more helpful. Um, what he was doing when he subjected the world to futility was fulfilling or putting in place the necessary realities for the revelation of his glory supremely in Christ who would manifest it supremely in his grace and that supremely in his death. So moving from glory to grace to Christ to 
death. Which implies, as you can, if you're thinking with me, which implies that in order for Christ to die, there had to be death. In order for him to be killed, there had to be killers. If God planned from eternity that the revelation of his glory would reach its apex in grace, in Christ, in his death, it is finished. If that was the plan, everything had to be put in place. There had to be a subjection to futility. Now, to give you a flavor of the weight of this and the biblical foundation of it. I'm not being driven by logic here. You know, to hell with logic, as far as I'm concerned, when the Bible stands. The Bible says, in love he predestined us. This is Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons according to his will unto the praise of the glory of his grace. That verse 6 of Ephesians 1, he predestined us unto sonship according to his will unto the praise, we praise, the glory of his grace means the ultimate reason for all things is the praising of the glory of the grace of God. That is the ultimate reason. And it was predestined before the world was. God's design when he contemplated a universe and creation was I will perform in this universe such a universe that the apex of its meaning will be the praising of the glory of my grace. That's the meaning of the universe. Now, if you embrace that, it isn't logic. It's other texts that drive you to a few other conclusions. Let me read you another verse. That was Ephesians 1, 6. This is 2 Timothy 1, 9. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and the grace, get this, the grace that he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When did you receive grace in Christ Jesus? Before the ages began. Grace means treating people better than they deserve. Before you were created or the universe was created, Christ was the source of the grace that would come to you and it was made over to you in Christ before the foundation of the world, which means everything was planned. 
that was required for Christ to purchase by his blood the grace that saved your soul. One more verse. This is Revelation 13, 8. It's about the beast and who worships him and who doesn't worship him. It would be worth a sermon or ten of its own. And it goes like this. Everyone will worship the beast whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Everyone will worship the beast whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book. And here's the name of the book. The book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the name of the book before creation. And the only thing I want to draw your attention to among all the ten sermons that could be preached on that verse is the Lamb who was slain. We don't use the word slain very often. There's a Greek word, svagidzomai. It's not a pretty word, is it? Svagidzomai. It means slaughter. It's what you do to lambs. You don't use it for much else. You cut their throat, they die. It's cleaned up in English with the word slain. We hardly ever talk about the lamb who was slaughtered. It just sounds a little too gross. It was gross. It ought to be gross. The crucifixion was gross. It was horrific. If you'd been there, you would have thrown up and screamed. That was the plan. That was the plan. So now I'm going to go back and say it again. What's the meaning of the universe? What, what, was the, what was the design of this subjection? Why did it come to this? That the whole universe would be brought into subjection so that there were liars and betrayers and deniers and expedient governors and, and things like crosses and nails and hammers and spears and mockery and beard pulling and spitting. Why did it come to that? Where did that come from and why did it come? It came because God's design in the universe was this ultimate reality weaving together Ephesians 1, 6, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and Revelation 13, 8, and Romans 8, 20, 3 and 5 and 18, the whole paragraph, weaving that all together, God's design in the universe from eternity was that His glory would be praised. That's why we're made. Isaiah 43, 7, Bring my sons from far, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created for my glory. That my glory might be praised. Then he gets more specific in Ephesians 1, 6. That is, that the glory of my grace might be praised. And then he's more specific than that in 2 Timothy 1, 9. It is the glory in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world that will be praised. And then he is more specific than that in Revelation 13, 8. It is the glory of the grace of the Lord Jesus slaughtered 
In other words, the apex, the high point, nothing will ever go higher. Nothing will ever go higher. The second coming will not go higher. Nothing will ever go higher in the display of the glory of the grace of God than the slaughter of his son for sinners. We will sing that song forever. I've heard people say we won't we won't remember horrible things in heaven. You will. You will remember the most horrible thing in heaven. You will sing the most horrible thing in heaven forever. The slaughter of the Lamb of God for sinners who deserve nothing. You will sing forever. That's the apex. And that's why the universe exists. I was talking with David this afternoon, young man who travels with me. And I said, I've just been... Overwhelmed with these thoughts. I I hope you go away, not with, with big thoughts about suffering, but big thoughts about Jesus. It's all the universe, history, suffering, everything. It's about magnifying Jesus. I just, I hope you can realize he made the universe, Colossians 1.17. It was made for him. He upholds it by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 3. It's his grace in which we find salvation. It's his slaughter on Calvary, which is the end point and the middle point and the high point of the revelation of all that history is about. If you think the heavens are telling the glory of God, go to Calvary. So that's my second Expansion and clarification upon yesterday by way of introduction (laughs) to tonight's message. Here's number three. In Christ's dying as the revelation of the apex of God's glorious grace, he manifests His glory and God's glory in two very different ways in regard to suffering. This may, I hope this gets very practically helpful for you at this point. If those thoughts feel overwhelming, try to come. Um, Number one, he purchased in his dying deliverance from all pain. By his wounds, we are healed. It's only a matter of time. You know, charismatics and non-charismatics disagree about the timing here a little bit, about the proportion, the proportion of how much of that comes into this age. But there's no disagreement ultimately on the meaning of that verse. By his wounds, we are healed. So one thing that he did is reveal a majestic power that everybody in Christ gets healed someday. Everybody. That's what he bought. So his glory as a healer, his glory as majestic in power over all suffering and all sickness is lifted up at the cross. I purchase all wellness here. That's the first thing. Second, he purchased the persevering faith 
of his suffering followers and became their supremely satisfying treasure on the cross. Say that again. He purchased the persevering, satisfied, resting, contented faith of his suffering followers. And in doing it, he became their supremely satisfying treasure. Now, here's, here's what we're faced with. If those are both true, that on the cross, his wounds healed all his people, and if on the cross, his wounds secured their persevering faith through suffering and became their all-satisfying treasure as they suffer so that they may continue to suffer without throwing away their faith. If, if both of those were purchased at the cross and, and, and he should be glorified in both ways as our healer and our sustainer, how do they relate to each other? In your personal life, how do they relate to each other? We should glorify him the first way, glorify the first achievement by praying for and experiencing healing. Yes, we should. With all our heart, we should pray for people who come to you who are sick. I, I am not afraid to lay my hand on any sick person and simply ask God to heal them. I, I don't even say if it's your will. Everybody knows that's my theology, for goodness sakes. You know, I, 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 think, I think sometimes we stick it on because we're just afraid he might not do it and want to cover our tail. Well, relax, you know, relax. Miracles show up. Just be bold and be childlike. You ask your father for... Bread, he won't give you a stone. He may not give you bread. He knows what you need. But you have not because you ask not, James said. So that's one reality. I just want to make sure I don't minimize. We should honor the achievement of the cross by praying that God would heal sick people. Secondly, we should glorify the crucified Savior by suffering with satisfaction and praying for those who are in suffering that they experience profound restfulness in Christ. He is honored both ways, mightily honored both ways. But we were having lunch together today, a couple of brothers, and lights were going on everywhere for me. <laughs> we were having this conversation, brothers. I'll just tell you, I've learned so much coming to this unpronounceable town. It's Welly, or whatever it is. Lights were going on everywhere for me because we were, we were just talking over why God might ordain that in this present time, you know that phrase from verse 18? In this present, I'd regard that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. It sounds to me like this present time is appointed for that. Which means that if I take these two, glorify him as a healer, glorify him as a sustainer and an all-satisfying treasure, I'm going to say, I think 
the proportion for the present time is that healing is exceptional. And sustaining grace with him as our treasure is normative. And then the time will change. Then the time will change. When the Lord comes and we rise from the dead to meet him, total change. And then it is totally normative to give him all glory as a healer. Your body in the resurrection will forever bear witness to the power of the cross that this happened there, this happened there. Now, you've got 50, 60, 80 years here with your wheelchairs, which may or may not be where you stay, to say, for this time, for this time, this is the witness. I will give him glory, and, and you will all be in wheelchairs sooner or later. I will give him glory for this assignment as he satisfies my soul. And what was going on at the dinner table was that we were contemplating why God have, might set it up, not just for the ultimate glory of Christ. That is why he would ordain such a season as this present time, not just so that his son could perish and be exalted in his resurrection and in the cross. But might there not be ways to glorify God in our sufferings that are superior? And we articulated several. I'm not even sure I could remember them all. One would be if you're healed. I'll just mention one. If you're healed and immediately you're your cancer is gone or your eyes are no longer blind. At that moment, there's this large outcry of glorifying God. Remember, read that in the Bible. They glorified God saying, we've never seen such a thing. And here are several things. One, it doesn't tend to last. Two, three years later, you're just taking it for granted again. I'm healthy, I'm whole, and you're watching TV and, and just goofing off and wasting your life. Instead of living in the power of that moment, it doesn't last. Suffering lasts. Every day we either do or don't magnify him in our pain. Second is, it's ambiguous. Is the praising because Christ is glorious or I love health? That's a little bit ambiguous. And so who's getting the glory here? Is health getting the glory or is Jesus getting the glory? So you can see that the present experience of the miraculous in healing is a little bit different in its qualitative ability to magnify the Lord long-term and deep than some of the harder ways. That's the end of clarification number three. Hmm. I have six promises because the big question is, does, does Paul help us here? I'm going to blaze through these. Um, does Paul help us endure verse 23? Even we, even we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan. Hear that, suffering saint. 
Your groaning is shared by all the saints of all time. And Paul is utterly realistic about this. We groan waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Can you help us with this, Paul? Can you help us survive this? If I've got to do this for another 20 or 30 years, can you help? Is there some help here? And there are. I told you there were 12. I'm going to do six. Maybe I won't do six. I'm going to rush through six promises. Number one, these are all here to help us suffer. They're all here tonight as a gift to you to help you get ready. If you're not suffering, you will. And I want you to be ready. And if you are, I hope they help. Number one, God promises that this time of suffering, after this time of suffering, we will see an all-satisfying beauty and greatness. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He promises that someday you're going to see His glory, which He prayed in John 1724, that we would see. Father, I pray that those whom you've given me might be with me where I am to see my glory. We all know that even though it's not the sum total of joy, seeing glorious things is a huge part of glory, a huge part of joy. You go to seaside, you go to mountain ranges, you go to big movies, you, you look at little babies, you, you see things, you, you want to see greatness, you want to see beauty. Seeing beauty satisfies the soul. And we are going to see the maker of all things, the designer of all things, the one who loved and died and rose. We're going to see him. Oh, Lord, hasten the day. Number two, God promises that the children of God will be revealed with glory of their own, which fits them to see him and enjoy him as they never could in their present condition. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What what will be revealed about the sons of God at the last day? Answer verse uh, 21. The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what will be revealed about us. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this glory here was already referred to back in verse 17. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. And now he's calling it the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is what creation waits for the revealing of. What does that little word freedom signify? I think it signifies there is coming a day When all the British hindrances to joy, not fair, all the human hindrances to joy, I'm just surprised how many of you raise their hand and you do sing well. I really like the way you sing. Um, And raising hand is no sign of definite joy. It could be total hypocrisy. Stop. Get on with the sermon. There is coming a day. When this soul, let's just focus on this needy soul. When this crippled, emotionally wounded, 
crippled soul that wants to delight in God, wants to know God, wants to enjoy God 10,000 times more than I can will be freed from every hindrance. So if, if, you, if you hear me say we're going to be able to see him and enjoy him, and given your capacity to enjoy what you see right now, you say, that wouldn't be very great. Well, it wouldn't be. I admit that. If you saw Jesus right now, you'd probably be incinerated. But if, if you were spared from that, your capacities in your present condition for enjoying him the way he should be enjoyed would be small. But they won't stay small. That's the meaning of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We will be freed from everything that stands in the way of our capacities for almost infinite pleasure in God. That's what I see as the second promise. So don't worry about whether you're Swedish or uh, English or Latino or whatever. Don't worry that your present capacities for emotional engagement with beauty will limit you then. They won't. Number three, God promises that all creation, not just the children of God, will be freed from this present futility. And I'll just, verse 21 again, the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into, into. The creation is coming into our experience of this freedom. The creation is waiting for us. When it happens to us, the creation will join us. And this will happen that all of creation will become a suitable place for these newly designed human beings who have an almost in capacity to enjoy God. We've got to have a new universe for that. This present universe with that ocean and these mountains and our beauties, this has to go up about 10 million decibels in order for it to be an appropriate reflection and habitation for these new people who mean to enjoy God here forever. That's what has to happen. And it will happen according to verse 21. The creation itself will be set free. Not just you, creation itself. Number four. I'm racing because my time is up, but I'm going to finish quick. God promises that the miseries of the universe are not the death throes, but they are the pains of childbirth. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers in the pains of childbirth together until now. He's saying everything you see in the universe. Let me back up and say it this way. You go to a hospital. And you hear a woman cry. Ah! You, you are you recognized it. <laughs> I've heard it a lot of times. It will make a huge difference when you hear that if you're on the oncology ward. Is that an American word? Cancer ward. Or, or the maternity ward. If you're on the maternity ward, you'll hear that totally differently than if you heard it on the other part of the hospital. And you, you might say, why? Pain is pain. No, pain is not pain. Pain is either leading to destruction or pain is leading to glory. 
And the two are very different. And this says God's way of hearing the pain is labor pains. That's an amazing statement. If, if you are in the kingdom by faith in Jesus, every ache you ever have is a labor pain. Leading to glory, not leading to destruction. That's number four. Number five, God promises that our bodies will be redeemed from all groaning. Verse 23, we've already said that. So let me just go to the last one and end here. I'm going to verses 33 to 37 of Romans 8. And it goes like this. This will only take a couple of minutes. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. So now we're back to the beginning of the chapter. No condemnation. Nobody's going to successfully condemn those who are elect in Christ. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, we're being killed all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? More than conquerors as you are slaughtered. We are being killed all day long. That's happening somewhere in the world today. I don't think that's an overstatement. It just means it's not happening here now. We are being killed all day long. That happens everywhere in the world or somewhere in the world all the time. We are being killed all day long in this, in this. We are more than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? I mean, a conqueror is a conqueror. Here's, here's my stab at it. If you conquer... Death, it lies dead at your feet. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You're dead at my feet. That's a conqueror. More than a conqueror is if you say, Death, get up and serve me well. More than conquerors take things captive. They don't just kill them. They take them captive and they put them to good use. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.21, all things are yours, whether Paulus or Cephas or uh, uh, Paul, all things are yours, whether life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ. He means death is now your servant. It has been transformed. We're all heading there if Jesus doesn't come back. But we're heading not to an enemy. Where is your sting? You look death in the face, you see, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And death becomes a pathway to paradise and a quick preview of the king that we will see in all of his glory fullest when he raises us from the dead. This book was, was uh, promoted last night. So I asked that David would get it for me, and he did. And I opened it to read The Call to Sacrifice. I'm going to close by reading a paragraph here. 
And I think it's what God wants to do in this room. I know I'm talking to the students in about 25 minutes or so. In this room, there are young people, but there are lots and lots of people, 40s, 50s, 60s. One of the effects of this, my little two messages and all the others combined, is that God is shaking your, your life. He's shaking the roots of your life. Here you are, 40, 50, 62, and he's shaking it like this, saying, I might have something else for you. He's doing that all over this room. I might have something else for you. I don't want you to be afraid of it. I don't want you to look at the, the scary parts of it and back away from it. It might be you've reached, you've, you've made your bundle. It's in the bank. You could retire at 50 and do another thing. And he's saying, I want you to do another thing. And you'll, you'll know who you are. And I close by reading this. It's a quote from Howard Guinness' book, uh, Sacrifice. This is uh, Shining Like the Stars. We're the young men and women, and I'm going to just change it. We're the finishers. We call them finishers in America. We're the finishers, the 50s, 60-somethings, who've got another good 20 years, maybe. We're the finishers of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even to death, who will lose their lives for Christ's, flinging them away for love of Him. Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless? For his service. And I'll tell you where they are. They're in this room. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would touch them right now. Just touch them and let them know who they are. The ones who are being called at this conference to take a, a right angle or a 180 degrees in their present vocation and do a brand new thing. And it may be in Afghanistan or it may be in this land, this great Britain. Or it may be a place they don't know. It may be heaven. Father, take hold of them and give them all the courage that is meant to be seen in Romans 8, I pray. In Jesus' name.